Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world. One thing that remains constant is how much things change. Take the Olympics, for example. What began in the 5th century BC as a religious festival honoring the Greek god Zeus, today is a secular competition among nations. We have a pageant and patriotic anthems. But this year, religion is getting a lot of attention for another reason. This week, we're taking a closer look at how religion is being discussed, expressed, and politicized at this year's Winter Olympic Games taking place in Beijing, China. A growing coalition of advocates are calling for boycotts of sponsors, including some athletes, citing religious persecution and human rights violations. To dive in and unpack this and much more, I caught up with religion reporter Kelsey Dallas from Salt Lake City, Utah. Kelsey Dallas, thank you for joining us on Inspired. It's good to have you back. Yes, I'm so happy to be back. And for our listeners who may not recognize your voice, tell us where in the world they will find you and where they can read your Wonderful writing about religion. I am a religion reporter for the Deseret News that's based in Salt Lake City, although we cover national issues. So you write a weekly column, is that right? Is it weekly or monthly? Weekly. It comes out on Monday nights, a newsletter about the state of faith in the U.S. And it's one of my favorite reads. I keep it in a folder just when I need to like get a scan of what's going on, and I always appreciate your insights. And you have been covering religion for how long now? Almost eight years. Tell us why you find this beat to be your home. It started as sort of a personal calling where I knew the importance of religious activity and religious people in my own life, especially in my younger years as I was growing up. And so then when I went to college and grad school and really got into the academic study of religion, it was just so exciting to be able to learn about that same influence at work in other people's lives. And so it's really been a gift to take that love of experiencing religion and studying religion and transform it into writing about religion. And so it, it really has been um, this this love of my life that I have dove into. I can hear it in your voice. You like to dive into the questions about faith and practice and the way things are changing. And that which brings us to why we're talking today. This coming week, we're going to have the beginning of a spectacle. I like to call it a spectacle because it is the Olympics. Um, I remember growing up, sitting around the, you know, the television. It was a big event in my household growing up. I'm curious, like, what is your favorite Olympic memory? Oh, the one that stands out to me the most is, I believe it was 2008 when Michael Phelps was making a big push to win the most gold medals at a single Olympics. It was sort of the height of his career. 
And I can just remember basically every single one of his races standing and watching, screaming my head off with friends. It just brings me so much joy to think about that moment in my life and also that moment in American athletics. It's interesting that you say that there is this like almost civil religion quality to the Olympics, which is kind of funny when you think about the history of the Olympics, which started off itself as a religious festival. Yes, I feel like my memories of watching the games has always felt as uh, religious as attending a confirmation ceremony or a baptism, that there were all these specialized rituals involved, both in individual athletic events, but especially in the opening and closing ceremonies. But when I've done more research and done some reading about this, I was uh, tickled and amazed to realize just how religious the roots of the games were. And that's not evident watching it today. I mean, it may have these spiritual or religious aspects, but you don't feel like, oh, wow, this began as sort of a religious activity unto itself. Right, with offerings to Zeus. I mean, I, I was listening to a couple of historians talk about the, the the pageantry and the religious festivals that took place around the Olympics. It is quite amazing because you wouldn't know it from watching them today. Today, it takes on that, as you, I think, are describing well, like the pageantry. And it has this nationalistic quality to it. So there's a civil and civic kind of pride that people feel. And there's a lot of religion still today in the Olympics. It just doesn't look the way it did at its founding. Yes, I think a through line is probably that individual athletes feel as if their own performance, they owe their performance, they owe their talents and gifts and athletic strengths to God or gods that they pray to. Um, you, you still see today that athletes are crossing themselves or doing some other religious symbol at the end of, and the beginning of their competition. But what, what's interesting to think about is that in the past, the entire games were seen as some sort of um, gift to the gods or a celebration of the gods. Whereas today, as you mentioned, the games feel much more like a political event or a diplomatic event or a patriotic event. You've touched on this in one of your recent newsletters. Um, I think when you were looking at the Summer Olympics, what did you find? Were there any particular practices that stood out to you? Yes, definitely. I think that an athlete's religious upbringing and religious practices can give shape and offer comfort in their training routines and then their competitions. And so you can see that um, in interviews that athletes give about their preparation for the Olympics, where one of the uh, gymnasts from the summer games that we just saw had talked about how her dad was helping her prepare by actually giving her specific prayers to think about or prayers to say during the Olympics games and in the lead up to her competitions. And I mean, it's it's very clear that athletes of all stripes are involved in that type of uh, game-centric religious behavior because athletes are, as I mentioned, crossing themselves, praying, they're giving thanks after their uh, performances. And that's that's expected if you watch sports in general, that, that you see little uh, tidbits of people's religious practices coming up at all moments of competition. Do you think that athletes who uh, are practicing a particular faith tradition, do you think that that spirituality and religious practice gives them a competitive edge? 
I think that it does in the sense that it can really help with your mental health and your grounding as a person, that you feel more centered, perhaps. You don't feel as if your life all comes down to the outcome of this one race or event, that there's something bigger out there that you need to stay focused on or care about. Now, I will mention that I think that there are ways for non-religious or not as religiously active athletes to sort of get that same edge just by working with a, a sports psych psychologist or just thinking more about how they can build out parts of their life that have nothing to do with the game. So I don't mean to say that religious athletes edge can't be met by other factors, but I do think it, it is incredibly valuable to those athletes who take faith very seriously. I hear what you're saying. And I'm wondering if you think faith could potentially be misused by athletes, something along the lines of if I practice nonstop, then, you know, God will reward me with a gold medal. Have you, have you I, stumbled I've... across that? I've seen that kind of thinking, but it was actually in the context of the NFL here in the U.S. I talked to chaplains for various teams about what types of prayers they offer to those teams and what types of prayers they're asking football players to sort of focus on. And all of them have talked about how it's important not to pray really for a win, not to pray for the perfect day, just to pray that uh, God gives you sort of a uh, the, the confidence and strength to go out there and, and use your gifts to the best of your ability. So I don't know if that's making sense, but what I'm trying to say is that it's not that you would pray for a win. It's just that you would pray to enjoy every moment and live each moment to the fullest. Because if you tie God's support too closely to the outcome of the event, that can be really detrimental both to your career and to your spiritual life, because you would feel like God abandoned you if you tripped or if you weren't able to finish the race. I'm not a theologian, but it sounds a lot like the thinking in some prosperity gospel theology, that if you are prosperous and you are able to generate a certain amount of wealth, that is a sign of um, of providence. That's a sign of blessing. It sounds like you're saying there's similarly, like, there's some, some pitfalls to that kind of what some would describe, I think, is like, uh, you know, rabbit foot theology. Pray to win and, and you hold on to it. And if it doesn't happen, then it speaks to something much larger, something much deeper. Right. I believe chaplains, certainly in the NFL context, but I'm guessing those that work in the context of the Olympic Games are trying to help athletes focus on the process rather than the outcome, focus on how their faith can help them uh, persevere in difficult moments or feel calm when they're feeling anxious or stressed out, rather than saying, okay, your prayer gives you a leg up because you can get God to care about which medal you receive. Mm. All of this kind of begs the question. This year's Winter Olympics are taking place in China, um, a communist country that has taken a very hard line when it comes to religion and religious practice. Let's talk about what individual religious practice looks like for these athletes. How is faith practice rituals and rites? How is it accommodated typically at the Olympics? I believe in the case of most games, there has been an effort to connect the athletes with various chaplains, various faith leaders to ensure that they have that spiritual support that they would be able to get easily at home during their training. But first at the Tokyo Games last summer, and then now in Beijing this month, the the problem is that if you have a very strict COVID bubble, if you need to stay within the confines of your own um 
Olympic Village and then the competition grounds, you don't have a chance to go meet with a Catholic priest or attend an evangelical worship service on the Sunday mornings that you're in Beijing. And so you really have to build up a virtual support system. And I think that for most athletes, that would be pretty personalized where they would be able to talk to their own spiritual advisor or faith leader on their own time. In Tokyo, there was an effort to connect the athletes to local religious leaders with streaming worship services. So the Catholic Archdiocese of Tokyo was able to try to broadcast services, but it's an incredibly different situation than a typical Olympic Games where the athletes would have a little bit more freedom to check out the local religious landscape, to visit houses of worship, and to take that time away in an actual physical church to pray or meditate. It's not the only controversy, though, in China when it comes to religion. If we take a step back from individual practice, the country itself has been uh, criticized heavily for its persecution of religious minorities. It's an avowed atheist country. But specifically around the Olympics, what are some of the headlines that have caught your attention where activists and advocates and even the athletes are getting involved? Yes, there have been many red flags waved about the optics of hosting the games in China and putting this spotlight on China at a time when their human rights record is uh, horrifying to behold. Anytime I interview someone about the situation of religious freedom or human rights around the world, China is basically the first country they mention, um, most notably because of the treatment of Uyghur Muslims within um one of the country's regions, that there has been forced imprisonment of Uyghur Muslims, that there has been efforts to re-educate them or put them in forced labor camps because of the government's concern about their ethnicity and their religious practice, their allegiance to Islam. But just in general, China gets very nervous about religious activity and tries to keep a close eye on all sorts of uh, different faith groups. So I have seen messages that are specific about Christians in China as well. And just the idea that many Christians in China feel like they need to keep their religious activity hidden and participate in underground churches, that it feels like you can't worship out in the open or else you'll be faced with some tricky questions, if not limitations on other parts of your social life. The global awareness about persecution, and particularly, as you were mentioning, the Uyghur Muslims um, in the autonomous region, the, the combination of disappearances, detentions, the raising and uh, essentially destruction of mosques, uh, the disappearance of, of whole families. I will say that one thing that has um, really struck me is that even now athletes who aren't part of the community, they aren't Uyghur themselves, are using their platform to raise awareness about that level of persecution. Put that in some sort of context. Is this the first time religious persecution has come into kind of focus around the Olympics? Well, we did have this situation in, I believe, 1936, where the Nazi regime in Germany was already rising to power, and that was when Berlin hosted the Olympics. One of the talking points as people have pushed back against Beijing 
hosting this year's Olympics is that the the U.S. really flubbed it back then in 1936 that we went ahead with our participation. Uh, we put sort of a, a stamp of approval of what was happening under the Nazi regime, um, at least when it came to the games. And it really gave the Nazi regime an out on some of their worst behavior that said, see, all these countries are still willing to partner with us. They're still willing to come here and send their athletes and celebrate what we're up to. And it really undermined efforts to uh, change the behavior in that country in the years that followed and to protect the Jewish community and others. And so I think that that's what many religious freedom advocates are worried about today is that if we move forward and treat the Beijing games as if everything is hunky-dory, as if we can get along with Chinese officials just fine, that we're basically saying, yeah, they're doing some iffy things with Uyghur Muslims. They're maybe not nice to Christians, but we still think they did an awesome job with this Olympics. And so I think many people are incredibly frustrated that we would at all behave as if the game should go on as planned. You know, as you kind of t- talk about and reflect on that history, the normalizing of an administration, the U.S. government, we should say, has made a determination or decision to do a diplomatic boycott. And and what does that mean for folks who may not be familiar with that? Yes, that is a very important move for the Biden administration. That means that uh, Diplomats from the country, high-level officials will not be taking part in the games. They won't be there on the sidelines cheering on American athletes, which would typically be part of the Olympic ceremonies. And it explains why both of us talked about uh, thinking of the Olympics as not just an athletic event, but a diplomatic or political event. So that does signal that the U.S. is treating this differently or thinking of this differently. And around the time the Biden administration announced the diplomatic boycott, Congress um, passed a bipartisan law that's going to limit the import of goods from China because of the treatments of Uyghur Muslims. So uh, certainly the U.S. is trying to crack down on this alongside other countries, but we have stopped short of pulling out our athletes, certainly, and even sort of forcing companies to reconsider sponsorships or media organizations reconsidering sending people. So the diplomatic boycott is important, but I think that many religious freedom advocates are asking for more. In January, one of the Olympic team members from the U.S., Timothy LeDuc, did speak out about human rights violations in China just hours after he had secured a spot on the skating delegation. And that was significant because until that point, athletes had really danced or tiptoed around the issue out of fear of of sort of putting the spotlight on themselves and maybe not being able to go to China because of dangers that, that their statements brought about. And I do worry about that when we look at coverage of the Olympics over the next couple of weeks. I, if you want each individual athlete to speak out about these issues in press conferences, you have to be aware that that would potentially put themselves in danger within um, the country when they're in China China for the games. And so I've heard other folks suggesting that instead of really putting the impetus with the athletes, that it should be media organizations or reporters like myself as we cover individual events and outcomes, trying to raise awareness of human rights violations in our articles from the safety of wherever we're writing or recording those pieces.
that is a really striking point. The idea that the that those who are telling the story need to be providing the context so the onus isn't on the athletes themselves. But let's say the athletes themselves do choose to use the microphone while they are in Beijing to, to talk about and criticize the host country. What do you think China would do? Is there really a risk with this many eyes watching with this much accountability? I believe that you are right to point out why would China choose to do something when the backlash would be so huge. But there have already been warnings about uh, athletes needing to bring burner phones, for example, because of the long tail that might follow their their visit to China and their participation in this games. And so I don't think that American officials or officials from anywhere are putting it past China uh, to be up to no good, uh, even during this moment when all eyes from around the world are on their country. There will be ramifications of some form. And it's just a matter of whether government officials and athletic leaders can anticipate that and help protect the athletes. Mm. The other point I'd like to raise is about what we expect from our athletes at this highly pressurized moment in their athletic career. So we, of course, want them to be ambassadors for our country and to represent us well and to also represent our commitment to not just religious freedom, but all sorts of human rights in their own actions, in the statements that they make, and to stand up for the vulnerable, as, as hopefully our government leaders do in their own interactions. But I I just wonder if it's it's asking too much of these mostly young men and women who are sort of dealing with already enough stress that comes from performing at such a high level and such a a stage. I don't mean to say that they should be excused from taking a stand or excused from studying up on what it means to be in China at this moment or to take part in this particular Olympics, but I do have some sympathy for just all the different balls that each athlete will have in the air. Yeah. No, I appreciate you pointing that out. You went to an event recently organized by the Heritage Foundation online just a few days ago. Tell me what you saw and what you heard. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. I was just going to mention that I had heard Boston Celtics Center Ennis Cantor Freedom speak during that Heritage Foundation event, and he has been incredibly outspoken on this issue, calling for more ramifications against China, calling for the games to be moved or canceled even at this late hour. You know, to me, diplomatic boycott is good. Obviously, it shows something, but it is not enough. You know, I feel like all the athletes out there needs to needs to say, you know, enough is enough. You know, this is bigger than sports. I think Representative call it genocide games, and I call it the medal of shame. You know, all the gold medals in the world that you can win is not more important than your morals, your principles, and your values. He went so far as to say that athletes should really do some soul searching and decide whether they want to be associated with this games, whether it's not better to uh, drop out, to stay home and to spend their time speaking out against what's going on in China instead of um, competing as an individual and maybe act, uh, unintentionally putting a stamp of approval on what's happening. Now, I, I've been really wrestling with his call to action for athletes because in many cases, these athletes basically only have one or two games where they will be at their peak athletic performance and all these different 
situations will come to a head where they will make it onto an Olympic team and be able to compete. And so it seems almost cruel to ask them to give up that opportunity. But on the other hand, it seems cruel to let the games go on as normal when many, many people are suffering because of their faith in China. As always, it is a pleasure to talk to you, Kelsey. Hope to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. Kelsey Dallas covers religion, politics, and the Supreme Court for the Deseret News and serves as associate editor of Deseret News National. Coming up after the break, we travel out to North Carolina to meet a lay Buddhist minister who is part of a growing movement inviting the living to contemplate what it means to have a good death. Stay with us. friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. <laughs> 